right. Well, happy new year, everyone. I hope that this new year has gotten off to a really terrific start for you. It has for myself, for my family. We're excited about all that the new year holds. I don't know about you, but uh, the starting of a brand new year is truly one of the most exciting, hope-filled times of the entire year. I love this time of year, and uh, I'm so glad that you're in worship today where we can kind of celebrate together corporately for the first time in this brand new year of 2016. Well, you know, Americans really tend to struggle with money. That may prove to be one of the greatest understatements I make all year. Consider these statistics that come directly from some of the top money experts in America. Four out of five Americans owe more than they own. 40% borrow more than they can make monthly payments on. The average American family is three weeks away from bankruptcy. According to Social Security statistics, 85 out of 100 Americans have less than $1,000 in cash saved up by the age of 65. The average American gives less than 2% to charitable institutions And surveys now, for the last couple of decades at least, have shown that over 50% of all divorces are caused by or directly related to financial pressure in the home. In fact, we've discovered through just talking to people and coaching and counseling people through situations that this is now the most sensitive subject in marriage. It it used to be sexuality. Now it has become the issue of finances. It's an intense frustration, and many couples, it's so bad, they just don't want to talk about it at all. Now, why do we have problems like this? I mean, we live in a culture and in a time when there's probably more resources than we've ever had before, and yet, Why is there so much stress and pressure and difficulty related to money? Well, I believe there may be two primary reasons for that. One is attitude. One of my favorite statements that Billy Graham ever made in all of his wisdom and decades of working with people, he made this statement. When a person gets their attitude about money straight, it tends to straighten out just about every other area of life. And I believe he's absolutely right on that. Attitude about money is sometimes just wrong. We, we tend to evaluate our possessions too highly. But I think the second problem is ignorance. Attitude, but then ignorance. We have money, but we don't know how to manage it. Perhaps we've been taught how to earn money, how to get a job, how to make a a living, and yet we don't really know how to properly steward all of these resources, even in the church. We've talked about giving at times and taught what God's Word says, but we've often not talked about what it says about managing God's resources. 
Well, if you're new to the Bible, you may be surprised to hear that Jesus Christ said a whole lot about stewardship. In fact, out of his 36 parables, 16 of them are the primary focus of them is the management of resources. Jesus talked more about money than he did about heaven and hell. That's a fact, folks. He talked five times more about possessions than he talked about a subject as important as prayer. And so today, I'm kicking off a brand new four-part series that we're calling Wealth, Is It Worth It? Now, that title comes directly from this book. I I had the pleasure of reading this book a few months ago uh, during the summertime, and I'll tell you, I was impressed. The late S. Truett Cathy, founder of Chick-fil-A, wrote a number of books in his life, a, a, a wonderful, devoted Christian leader. But in my opinion, this is his best. There's so many great stories, so many phenomenal illustrations in here. Now, I want you to know, our sermon series is going to go way beyond this book. But I hope that even, now get this, I hope even some men will read this book. And I say that kind of teasingly because statistics tell us that when it comes to Christian books, women do most of the reading. Men really lag behind on that. But I I hope a lot of men are going to pick this book up. This is a worthy read, guys, for everyone. And I hope that this will reaffirm and reinforce what we're learning in our study from God's Word. Sermons are going to be directly out of the Bible, go way beyond the book. But I hope the book will reaffirm and kind of uh, reinforce what we're saying from God's Holy Word. And so today, I want us to jump in and study one of the parables that Jesus taught from Luke chapter 12. It's about a rich man who was fabulously wealthy. He had an abundance of crops, and but his attitude was like so many Americans I know. He said, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns, and then I'll store up my goods, and I'll have plenty to retire on one day. He would have been considered a smashing success by today's standards. But Jesus, Jesus called him something that he never called anyone else. Jesus never, ever, ever in any other place called a person a fool. But this is the one guy he reserved that description for. He had evaluated his possessions too highly. He didn't really understand the power of wealth for both good and for bad. So uh, from this parable today and the teaching that follows it, I want us to look at four tests that'll help us see if we're thinking sanely about the power of wealth. And by the way, that's the first major chapter uh, in this particular book that I hope you'll pick up. It's called The Power of Wealth. So many great stories to illustrate that. And so I want you to diagnose yourself a bit today. The first priority or the first test is the test of priorities, Priorities. So if you're taking notes, you might want to just write that word down. Luke 12, verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance 
of his possessions. And then he tells this popular parable about this man whose life was wrapped up in his possessions. And notice what this man said when his fields produced a bumper crop. He didn't say, you know what, God's blessed so much, I'm going to go directly to the temple and thank God and worship him for what he's done. He didn't say that. He didn't say, you know what, I've really got more than I could ever use, more than I need, so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull my family together, and we're going to take a wonderful trip together so we can deepen our relationships, because that's what would really help our family. He doesn't say that. Instead, he said, what I'm going to do, I'm going to build bigger barns and store up more stuff. Now, I want to be crystal clear right up front. There's nothing wrong with stuff building the increase or growing larger. In fact, uh, one of the sections in this book, Truett Cathy answers that question. Why get larger? Why add more stores? We already got all these stores. Why add more? And he gives a fabulous, biblically-oriented answer to that, I believe. Many people are like this man in the parable. They're materialists. They would deny it categorically. They'd say things like, oh, no, I'm doing this for another purpose. Or you know what? I I really just want to build this, but then one day I want to be fabulously generous. But the truth is their primary focus and attention is on more stuff. That's their real value. And in many cases, that's honestly their God. And that's the yuppie philosophy of recent decades. Your life does consist in the abundance of things you have. But I'm suggesting to you today that that is a silly philosophy. Your job represents what you do. Your possessions represent what you have. But your character, ah, that's what's most important. Your character represents who you really are. And that's the thing that's going to live on. That's the legacy you're going to leave. That's the thing that's most important. You see, money is a wonderful tool to be used, but it's a horrible God to be worshipped. And money can help you enjoy life, but it's of no benefit when it comes to the ultimate issues of life, particularly when you die. Jesus said, what shall it profit a person if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I heard about a stockbroker who was visited by a genie. And this genie said, you can have anything you wish for. He said, well, that's simple. I'd just like to be shown a newspaper dated one year from today. He knew that if he could just see a newspaper uh, one year from today, he would be able to position himself financially to be fabulously rich. And so he was given the paper. And he immediately went to the stock section and looked at all the indexes. And he, for hours, several hours, he began to plot his strategy for becoming a multimillionaire. And then he sat back smugly with tremendous satisfaction and he began to just gloat in how wealthy he was going to be. But in his ecstasy, he decided, well, I think I'll just thumb through the rest of the paper. He looked at the front page, went to the sports section. But finally, when he came to the obituary column, there he saw his own name. He was going to die one year 
from that day. And suddenly, his entire perspective changed. That's what Jesus is saying here about this rich fool. Verse 20 reads, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who's stored up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Jesus is simply saying, look, don't allow possessions to become your God. It's not a worthy God. Worship the true, the living God because you're just going to leave all these other things behind. Only God can help you in death. He goes on in verse 23, life is more than food and the body more than clothes. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. In other words, really make the Lord your priority. Now, let me just ask you, how are you doing with the priority test? Now, I want to tell you, once the Lord is truly your priority, that doesn't mean that money doesn't matter anymore. Are you hearing that? No, money still matters. Here's why it still matters, because we're still called to be stewards of everything God has given us, because God owns everything. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He, he's just temporarily loaned these things to us for us to manage them. I say my car, I have, we have two cars, one of them's actually paid for, it's the one I drive, it has 175,000 miles on it, it's been a great vehicle, but it's mine, it's paid for, all right? And I say my car, but you know one day, I'm going to see it's not really my car, I can envision a crane picking that car up about five years from now out of some junkyard, putting it in a compressor, compacting it, it being recycled, and it becoming somebody else's car. I've got a house. I call it my house. I say, come on over to the house. Come on over to my house. And, you know, in a sense, it is mine. At least it will be after 168 more monthly payments. I figured it out. It'll really be mine then, not the bank's. You know, but I can imagine one day my great grandchildren standing and their parents saying to them, "See, that's right over there. That's where your great grandfather Keener used to live." And they go, "Where?" They so right there in the middle of that clover leaf. You know, they had to put in a new expressway through here, so they had to remove the house. But that's where he used to live. It's not really my house. One day I'm, I'm going to move out. It's probably going to be gone. And I say my body, but you know what? It's not really my body. I'm just living in it. And when I die, I'm going to leave it behind and it's going to turn to dust. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Stewardship begins right there. When you really understand, I truly own nothing. I'm just temporarily borrowing these things from God, and that makes money very important. Here's why. Because I'm going to give an account to God 
for all the stuff he allowed me to manage. And folks, I want to tell you, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, I want you to know that's something I take very seriously. I take very seriously, and I'm going to stand before God one day. I don't mean to be this, some heavy trip here. I'm just telling you what I think about on a regular basis. And I'm going to give an account to God for how I stewarded everything he allowed me to call mine down here. Boy, that really gets my attention. Because his word teaches me in places like 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, now it's required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. See, here's why I'm, I'm stressing this. Because I used to think when I was a brand new Christian, hey, you know what? If I just give 10% back to God, then I've completely fulfilled my stewardship requirement and I'm good to go. I mean, I've done everything I need to do. But as I continue to grow in Christ and as I continue to study his word, I realize that's just a good starting point. I'm going to be accountable for everything how I stewarded everything he had given me. I'm going to be accountable for not only how I gave, but how I earned money, how I spent money, how I invested money, how I loaned it, what I purchased with it, and all that stuff is a test of my character. I hope you really hear that. Because wherever you are on this spiritual journey, if you're really wanting to grow in Christ and become Christ-like, what I'm talking about right now is vital to that. Oh, I want you to get this. We are simply stewards. So let me ask you again before we quickly move on. How are you doing with the priority test? What comes first, really, in your life? Okay, so let's move on to the second test. This is the test of trust. Now, as I read this parable, it seems that this rich fool trusted in himself. Here's where I get that from. In just a few little verses here, the words I, my, and mine are used about a dozen times. He seems to be completely engrossed in this belief that he can create security for himself, that he can control the future. But in truth, just the opposite is true. The more stuff we have, the less secure we tend to feel. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. That's why Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 5, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. You know what he's saying there? He's saying the more you have, the more you have to insure, the more you have to paint, the more you have to protect, the more you have to remodel, the more you have to guard, and the more you have to store up. That's why sometimes people who have so much become slaves to their very possessions. I had a friend once who owned a Maserati. Wow, it was a good-looking car, I'm telling you. Amazing vehicle. And if you own a Maserati, God bless you. I, I kind of envy you in some ways. But let me tell you, it wasn't a real blessing in the end. He bought this Maserati, and at first he just loved it. He felt so cool driving down the street, and heads would turn, this really cool-looking car. But he found out that 
police were more prone to stop him because they assumed he was speeding in a car like that. And then uh, he discovered that his insurance just skyrocketed. He couldn't believe it, how high it went. Because again, there's more here that you've got to insure. And certain assumptions are often made by some insurance companies. And then he became the victim of snide remarks. People would kind of whisper, I wonder how much money that guy makes anyway. Wow. And then he would go to the mall. He didn't want people to be opening their doors, you know, and chipping his paint. Too expensive. So he would sometimes, you've seen this, he would take two spaces and just kind of park diagonally. And then people would be miffed at him and he'd get nasty notes on his windshield. Like, how dare you? And so he would start parking way out on the back 40 of the parking lot, far away from everybody else and have to walk in. And so he got an alarm system on the car and something was wrong, and it went off a couple of times in the middle of the night accidentally, woke all the neighbors up. And so after a while, he's saying, I'll be so glad to get rid of this car. This thing is just a headache. We think the more we have, the more secure we're going to be, but the more we have, the more we have to worry about. Solomon also said, being kidnapped and held for ransom never worried a poor man. (laughs) And I guess he's right. Jesus said, don't trust yourself. Don't trust your possessions. Put your trust in God. I like verse 24. He said, consider the ravens. By the way, they were considered a scavenger bird, a detestable bird in the Old Testament. So I find it interesting that Jesus here, uh, in another passage, he chose sparrows as an example. But here he chose ravens. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storehouse or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? His point is, God provides for them. He'll provide for you. Now, I think when we read that, we need to make two observations about birds. First observation about birds, birds work. Did you know that? They don't sit around in the nest and say, well, God, you promised to provide, so here I am. I'm going to sit right here, drop in the worms, Lord. No. At the crack of dawn or before, they're up and about chirping, waking everybody up, going out, foraging for food. Birds work. Second observation that I want to make here is that birds plan ahead. You can watch them. (laughs) Around here, about every October, November, you'll see them getting together and plotting their route to Florida, right? Because they know cold weather is coming, and so we'd better plan ahead. Now, it's not wrong for us to plan ahead, not wrong for us to save up for our children's education, not wrong for you to get an emergency. In fact, if you take this Financial Peace University course that we're offering, you'll find out that all of those things are suggested and recommended. It's awesome. It's just a wise way to live. Those are all biblical principles to plan ahead. No problem in having money to retire and so on and so forth. Jesus said, no one will build a tower and not first sit down and count the cost or else she's going to get halfway through with the tower and not be able to afford it. And that person's going to be a laughing stock. So we should be planning ahead in our personal life, in our family life, 
If you're a part of a company, an organization, in the church we plan ahead. We're praying, Lord, what would you want us to do for the future? We don't believe we have a right just to get stagnant and stale. Lord, where do we need to be pushing the envelope? Where do we need to be reaching out and trying to get into new subcultures in the capital district? Where do we need to start a new congregation or two? We're praying about those things constantly and asking God to guide us with wisdom. Jesus did not encourage a reckless, carefree lifestyle. But we need to understand that no matter how well we plan or how much we accumulate, there are all kinds of contingencies we can never cover. Inflation, recession, Alzheimer's, accidents, nursing homes, lawsuits. You can't cover all that. So the wise, mature Christian, here's what she or he does. You come to the place where you say, look, I've done what I can do. Thank God. Now I'm just going to trust God here. Are you at that place yet? How are you doing? I know I'm being very personal here. I've got to be because this is such a personal issue. How are you doing with the issue of trust? Third test is the test of contentment. You know what amazes me about this guy in the parable Jesus taught? No matter how much he had, he seemed to never be content. I think he should have just copped the attitude, wow, God is so good. This is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. But no, he's restless. He's churning. Don't you know some people like that? They're doing better than they've ever done. All the signs just about seem to be very positive and up, and yet they're still churning, still discontented, still trying to see how they can beat out their competitor. They even think about money in church. Ecclesiastes 5 reads, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Now, why is that? Why are we so discontented? I think it's primarily because of our tendency to compare. We get into this mode of comparisons. And so this competition drives us no matter how much we have. It's not enough to make more money than last year. We've got to make more than our competitor. It's not enough to have a car that'll get us from point A to point B. No, we've got to have one nicer than everybody else, or, or at least equal to our friends. Or we just don't feel good about ourselves. And money becomes not a means of providing necessities or even providing enjoyment, but a means of keeping score, of, of keeping up with the Joneses. A secular writer in Forbes magazine wrote, sooner or later, I expect Americans to give up their comic faith in the miraculous power of money. Not for any preacher's reasons, but because as with any other neurosis, more and more people will soon come to appreciate the substitution of shadow for substance or illusion for reality results in behavior both idiotic and dangerous. Can you believe that? Secular writer going, when are Americans going to wake up and realize that money does not deliver what it promises? That's from Forbes magazine. 
We think it's going to bring satisfaction, but it brings worry and often a sense of recklessness. So Jesus said in verse 27, consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spend, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Folks, I just want to tell you, it's a good day when we come to the point where we say, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I'm not going to compare and I'm not going to compete anymore. Hebrews 13 reads, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Paul puts it like this in 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. I beg you, I urge you, I implore you, don't let your self-esteem be connected to your possessions. That's so silly. And as Americans, we tend to be just engrossed in that way of thinking. Let me say it again. Your job is what you do. Your possessions are what you have. But your character, oh, your character is who you are. So let me ask you, before we move to our final test, how are you doing with this third test of contentment? Are you noticing yourself growing a little bit in that area? It's a huge mark of maturity in the Christian life when we realize, you know what? If I've got food, if I've got clothing, there, there should honestly be a sense of, you know what? God is good. Wow, he's got my back here. God's gonna take care. I'm still planning ahead. I'm still doing what I know. But wow, God is good. And I'm content with the life he's given. One final test I want to put before you today in this kind of kickoff message called the power of wealth. And that is the test of generosity. And for many of us, this may may be the most difficult test of all. This rich farmer apparently didn't think of what he was going to do to give back. Or what he was going to give away. By the way, if you get this book I'm urging here, it has some wonderful stories in there about people giving back. Like lots of stuff from Warren Buffett, for instance, who's who's made it his life goal now to, to give it away. Lots of great stories like that, which I think you'll be blessed by and intrigued by. But the materialist usually goes to one of two extremes. The first extreme is indulgence. You just spend everything on self-pursuits. But I think think the second extreme is even worse, and that is you begin to stockpile. Hey, if you're indulgent, at least the money is in circulation and other people can benefit from it. But when money is hoarded... It takes it out of circulation and nobody benefits. I was stunned some years ago and this story came out of New York City of a bag lady, literally living on the streets, a bag lady who passed away and they found on her person a key to a safety deposit box and when that box was checked, 
She had in there over $2 million worth of stocks and bonds. They belonged to her, but they went unused. She might as well have been a pauper. That's why someone said, being of sound mind, I spent it all. But this rich man said, look, I'm going to store it up. I'm going to hoard it up. And somewhere down the road, I'm going to eat and be merry and have a lot of fun. You know what? I think that's all bull. He would have never done it. You know why he would have never done it? I've watched it over and over again with materialists. You get in this mode of stockpiling, and it pains you too much to ever let go of any of it. To give it away would be unthinkable because it's so much of your life. It's your security. It's your very identity is attached to how much you have. What? What a sad way to live. I I literally, I'm not joking, I pity people like that. I pity them when their whole identity is wrapped up in their bank account or their house. I read about a man with a weak heart who had won $2 million in the lottery. And his wife was concerned that when he found out about it, he'd have a heart attack. And so she did the only thing she knew to do. She called their pastor up, called their preacher and said, look, pastor, would you come over and just kind of reveal this to him in an easy way so he won't get too excited. And so the pastor sat down and he said, Stan, hey, let me ask you a question, friend. What would you do if you won $2 million in the lottery? Stan thought for a minute and he said, well, Pastor, I'll tell you, first thing I'd do, I'd give a million dollars of it to the church. And the pastor died of a heart attack. <laughs> See, we're, we're, we're just not accustomed to people giving it away. It's just not the way it goes. That's why Jesus went on in verse 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God commanded his people to give 10%. In the New Testament, he says, look, give as you've been prospered. I think most of us have far more than those ancient Hebrew people had, far more blessings. And yet the average American professing Christian, the average, gives about 2.5%. You know what I think? I think that's a telltale sign that money matters too much and God matters too little. I really do. I honestly believe it's a realistic telltale sign that money matters too much and and God honestly matters a bit too little. 
Jesus taught in Luke 16, 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? You know what Jesus is saying? Je- Jesus is saying, if you put all of his teachings together, look, if you dare to trust God here in this generosity test, it, two things are gonna happen. Number one, number one, the supernatural is gonna kick in in your finances. And what you'll find is that you'll find God's blessing, his fingerprints will be all over your life, all over your relationships, all over your emotional life. He'll be sustaining you and keeping you. But the second thing is, you're gonna be laying up treasure in heaven. Because the truth is, you never see an armored Brinks car following a hearse. Never see it. You can't take it with you. But Jesus promised you can send it on ahead. The passage we just read, create purses for yourselves that will never wear out. In other words, your reward will go on forever. As I close today, let me read one little section from this book, Wealth, Is It Worth It? The late Truett Cathy wrote, one of the worst things I can imagine somebody saying about me is, He's a rich old man. Instead, my prayer at this point, and by the way, this book was published in 2011. He passed away just some, I think a couple years after that. My prayer at this point is to live a worthy life and to leave a legacy similar to the one my mother left to me of hard work, loving kindness, generosity, and respect for the power of wealth to do good, or to do harm. That impact will outlive any monetary wealth I leave behind. Wow, that is so true. So, final question. Do you really want the Lord to be important in your life? Here's the biblical prescription then. If you really do, he says, Throw your wealth in. And wherever you throw your treasure, here's what Jesus taught, your heart will automatically follow. Now, some people in the world will think you're a fool. But God says you're the wisest person on the planet. As the martyred missionary Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. Father, thank you for the amazing teaching of your word and how you show us what our priorities ought to be, where our trust ought to lie. You show us all about contentment and you show us the nature of generosity. God, I pray that as we ponder today the the power of wealth, both for good and for harm, that you would give us that wisdom we desperately need. Help us to think so clearly and sanely about possessions that we would be pleasing you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. I'd like to invite our uh, offering team to come forth as we continue our time of worship in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Also, I think sometimes we 
we forget and maybe we're not looking, but I wanted to remind you there's always a memory verse.